I would ask you to open with your Bibles, uh, open your Bibles with me if you have one, to the book of Acts chapter 2. We've been camping out here in our series entitled, I Church, How to Sink the Believer to the Body of Christ. And we've been talking about this for the past few weeks. We've, we've talked last week uh, about worship, what it means to worship our Lord and Savior, and how God desires our worship. And the week before that, we talked about community. And today we're going to talk a little bit about growth. And I've been thinking about growth lately, and I was reminded of a conversation over lunch that I had a few months back. It was myself and uh, Kyle Wright, as well as Scott Hart and Gary Erweiler. We were talking about what it's like to grow up today. It's a lot different for those that are older than when when we were kids. Uh, Scott and I were mentioning, Scott, you had a paper route, right? Growing up with a paper route, I can see you now just chugging away on your bike, throwing papers. And uh, I, had, I, I grew up bean walking, and, and we were just talking about the jobs we had as kids. But today, a lot of the kids growing up don't have that. And these kids aren't growing up like, like we did when we were younger. And, and, it's, and our culture has allowed this, what we call perpetual adolescence, to continue on. Just like we saw, I don't know if you've paid attention to the Obamacare, what's going on there, but in um, 2014, a 26-year-old can stay on their parents' insurance. That is unbelievable to me because it's just continuing that perpetual adolescence. We have a culture where you're, you're, we're, we're young, we're like we're kids, and so we don't know what it means to grow up. And I, I think back to my, even my parents' generation. My mother grew up on the farm, and she, at the age of 12, had to cook for all these farmhands at 12 years of age. And that was normative, normal, back in the, in the day. And today, we've allowed ourselves to just continually continue on in this this uh, cycle of perpetual adolescence for our adults and even for our children we don't we allow them to continue on in that cycle and we need to grow up we need to not only just grow up in our culture but we need to grow up spiritually speaking because many of us we we still act like babes in christ even though we've been in church for several years. I was reminded of a, 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 a professor of mine named Dr. Jong Lee. He's a Korean man, and he was uh, preaching at a uh, Native American church, and he'd never done that before. It was a brand-new experience to him. And he said, as I'm, I'm getting ready to preach, and I'm looking at the parents, and I'm, I'm preaching to the parents, and the kids are acting just like crazy banshees. He says, they're swinging around, they're yelling, they're crawling on the platform, they're swinging on behind me, and I'm having the hardest time focusing. And he said, I, it just mystified me. These kids are going crazy, and the parents are not even paying attention to the kids. And it, it took me all of my gumption to get through preaching. And I got done, and I was speaking with one of the Native American adults, and he said, I, I'm just surprised at the children. He said, what are you surprised about? They're children. That's how children act. And he goes, but there's a point in time in our culture that they're no longer children. That there's a clear line of demarcation between when they are children and now they're adults. And they will behave and act like adults and are treated like adults. So while they're children, we let them behave as children. But there comes a moment in time that there are no more childish ways allowed and tolerated. You know, for us, many of us have been children and act like we've been babes in Christ for several years. And God's desire is for us to grow up in our faith. To become mature in our faith to take that next step of whatever it might be and not be babes in Christ any longer. So I would like us to stop for a moment and look at Acts chapter 2. We've been camping out on this passage for several weeks. We're just going to use this as a springboard today, and we're going to hit several other texts as we see how we can all grow up into maturity 
as Christ followers. All right, so let's look at Acts chapter, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It's our tradition here at Village Bible Church to stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, I'll be reading again from the English Standard Version as we continually look at this passage each week. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now longing to understand how we might grow up into our faith. Lord, for those that are babes, may they step into adolescence. And for those that are adolescents, become teenagers and on and on until we all attain maturity in the faith that we might look more and more like you each and every day. Grow us, change us, and help us to do your will above all things that your name might be made known in us and through us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to go through this today, looking at it piece by piece. Now, I'm going to throw some scriptures up there. As I mentioned before, we have several that we're going to look at uh, today as we're talking about maturity. The first one, I want us to establish the grounds that God does want us to mature and grow in our faith. I'd like us to look at 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment, 1 through 3. Can you put that up there for me, Carl? Now, see, we have here the Apostle Peter is saying, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk. See, the, the moment that you come to know Jesus Christ, you're, you're a baby. And what does a baby need to do? Eat, right? The baby needs to drink the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God because that's the, the truest essence. It's got all the healthy minerals in it. Just like you've seen whenever um, there's this uh, argument, but there was the argument going on for childbearing for some time if it was breastfeeding or you needed to be doing formula. But, you know, nothing substitutes what God has made, right? It's got all the nutrients in it and everything that's needed to help the baby fight off infection and grow. That's what the Word of God does. And we're to be growing and taking in the pure spiritual milk. However, we're to progress on. I'd like us to look at another passage here. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 through 14, as we walk through this. We're not going to be camping out on one verse particular today. We're going to be jumping around to several different texts. Uh, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk. Because he's saying now, you're no longer babes. You've been around for a while. You should be growing in your faith. Did you know you can be in church for 50 years and still be a baby in Christ? There's many many different Christians that I've met over the years that should be teachers, that should be elders, that should be leaders and mentors, and they still behave like babies. God desires that we all grow into maturity. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice. We're going to talk about training in a little bit. To distinguish good from evil. I'd like us to look at Hebrews chapter 6 as well. Here's another one. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Because some people say, I just need Jesus. That's it. But we've, we've established the fact that whenever you say, I need Jesus, you're establishing a doctrine, a teaching. 
We all need to grow in our understanding of the teaching of the gospel of God. We need to press on to maturity. We can't stay infants. We have to continue to grow. That's how God is established. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Also, here's another one. This is how, I just want to show you how much God desires that we grow. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28. Him we, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now here's the, another one for you. I'm just going to, I'm blasting you with these because I want you to see that God wants you to grow. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 through 16. Here we go. And he gave the apostles, this is God, he has given the church apostles. He's given the church prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and into the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. He doesn't want us to remain children. Not infants. He wants us to grow up. It's like my son. Okay, my son is two and a half years old. He has a pacifier called his passy. Right? And he's also getting potty trained. We're trying to, to train him right now. And right now, it's okay. It's that he's in his diaper. I mean, we're trying to grow him up. His sisters didn't take this long. Boys, I hear a little slower. Okay? And, and the girls were a little quicker with the language. And they were quicker. They didn't even hold on to the passy this long. And, and he wants, you know, we know that we want him to get rid of it. And it's going to take a little time. But, and it's okay, right? Because he's an infant. But is it okay if he's walking around at 20 years old with a pacifier in his mouth and a diaper? <laughs> Some people are like, like, guys are like, ah. Wife's like, no, 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 no. Okay? It's true. We need to grow up in our faith. That's what God wants us to do. So that we may not be carried about by every wind of doctrine. Every wind of it, anything that just comes in and whisks us away because we have no root, no foundation. God wants us to grow and our roots to go deep. To go down to the deeper things of God by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what does God want us to do? Grow up. You can say that again. I'm going to keep asking that question throughout the service. What does God what, um, want us to do? There we go. Now, how do we do that? Is it an act of our own flesh? Can I just decide, hey, I want to be mature? It doesn't happen that way, does it? It's a, it's a spiritual act. It's us responding to the Spirit of God. To the, the moment that we come to know Jesus Christ, He gives us His Spirit to teach us, to bring to remembrance the teachings and the words of Jesus Christ. That's the first point I want you to write down in your notes. We're going to go through these rather quickly. But we need, it requires us to be responding to the Spirit of God. If we're going to grow up in our faith, it's a spiritual act that we can't do by any fleshly means. We just can't decide, hey, I'm going to be mature one day. The flesh can't do it. It's us operating according to the Spirit of God. Paul knew this. That's why he said this to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2 through 3. Let's throw that up. 
Let me ask you, only this, did you receive the spirit of works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, our fallen person can't grow us to be the people that God wants us to be. We can't pick ourselves up by our proverbial bootstraps and grow in maturity. It's a spiritual act, which means submitting to the Spirit of God, which is awakening the Word of God in each one of us. Now, Paul draws this out in one of the most magnificent passages in all of Scripture. And that's in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. I, I can't tell you how instrumental and wonderful this passage is. Matter of fact, Romans 8, 1, every Christian should memorize. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many times have you sinned and you felt condemned? Anyone ever out there, the guilt just overcomes you and you felt condemned? You need to be reminded, we all need to be reminded that God gives grace, that there's forgiveness. But, but Paul sets forth in this amazing magisterial passage the wonder of the flesh versus the spirit he says this therefore there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus for the law of the spirit of life this is the spirit of god that he's talking about set uh set you free in christ jesus from the law of sin and death for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the, the Spirit of God. We don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit of God, the, the, the third person uh, of the Trinity, the Spirit of God in us, the Father above us, Christ alongside us, and the Spirit of God within us, directing us to the fullness of who jesus christ is for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the spirit the mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to god for it does not submit to god's law indeed it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please god this is a spiritual act that each of us have to learn how to do day in and day out. So it's God working together with our will. Did you know that? That's why Philippians chapter 2 is there. Because some people say, well, if it's God doing it and it's just his spirit, then where do I, where do I come into it? Well, here we have Philippians chapter 2. Let's throw, call that one up here. Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, much, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is who it's working you god who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure and how is he working in you through what the spirit of god god says that he wants us to oh come on god wants us to there we go god wants us to continually grow up in the faith God wants us to grow up because he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. Did you know that? When God places his spirit in Dennis Ducharme right here, God is saying that I want to make Dennis like Jesus. I want to make Dennis like my son. So the spirit of God is continually conforming us and shaping us to be like Jesus. That's what the spirit of God is doing within each one of us. Now, we are to cooperate with the Spirit of God that is working within us. And you know what that involves? First of all, and it's something that we've heard about, if you've been in church for any period of time, you have heard this. 
but it's something that we don't talk about very often anymore. But it means dying to self. Dying to self. Write that down. It's number two in your notes. Dying to self. God desires that we die to ourselves. What does Jesus tell us to pick up and carry daily? Our cross, right? To be a daily thing that means dying to self. I would like us to look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer. For those that aren't familiar, I would really encourage you to learn more about this amazing man of God. He was a 20th century German pastor, theologian, martyr, who was killed, uh, executed, actually right before the end of World War II. He was 39 years of age. He has left behind some of the greatest monumental theological works. Uh, his uh, monumental magnum opus would probably be, it's, it's called in German, he was German, Nachtfolge, which means uh, the cost of discipleship. And he lived the truth that he wrote about. And he said this here, when Christ calls a man, when he calls us to follow himself, it's for an explicit purpose. Do you know what that purpose is? To die. When Jesus calls us to himself, he calls us to die. He said, when, Jesus, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. You know, that's what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 24. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth... It, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's calling us to die to our sinful nature, to die to our earthly fallen desires, and to live according to the Spirit of God. And that's found in His Word. Now, how do we die to ourselves? Well, here's three points. The first one is this. It means being crucified with Christ. Crucified with Christ. Many of us are familiar with the well-known scripture in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, we appropriate Jesus' death as our own. By faith in him, when Jesus was crucified for us, by faith we appropriate his death because his death severed the cords of the power of sin and death. And by faith in him, we participate in his resurrect, I mean, in his crucifixion. So that's the first aspect of dying to self, is participating within his crucifixion. It also means being dead to sinful desires. Dead to sinful desires. We have sinful desires. Each one of us do. Do we not? We have fleshly desires that war against the Spirit of God, and, and that want to come out and do vile and awful things that come out of the, the fallen heart of men and women. And it portrays or demonstrates itself in a variety of different ways. For some, it could come out as, as any, uh, it can come out one way and another person it might come out another. But the fact is that it's all coming from the, the dark heart that we have. And that's because of the sinful nature, this original sin that we possess. And we, ha we do have original sin. That's what theologians call it. We inherited it from our parents. Just like you have a characteristic that you inherited from your parents. I mean, think about it. You've inherited a characteristic from your parents, did you not? Maybe it was the, the, the Fleming, like for me, it's the Fleming nose. You know, some of you might have Aunt Ethel's big toe or whatever it may be. And we inherited, but we inherited this family characteristic from our first parents. And that's a sinful nature. 
every one of us have it. And we say, well, how then can we be, can we be held responsible for having something that we inherited? Well, that's why the scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin actually is pointing back to a point in time where it's looking actually back in Adam. For we have sinned in Adam and it had continuing results. But we presently fall short. We choose to sin. So we're not only sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by choice. We choose to sin. We are by nature children of wrath. But we are to appropriate Christ's death as our own, which means that we are to be crucified with Christ and then die to sinful desires, as Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 14 says. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh or deeds of the body, you will live. For all who led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We're to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. We can't continue on in sin. We must not only should we enter into Christ's crucifixion and die to sinful desires, there's another aspect to it. See, so often we talk about Christ's death, but we forget that there's other parts of that. I mean, we, we have to remember that he was crucified, and then what happened? He died, and then the most the hinge upon which Christianity turns is the resurrection. The resurrection. So we must make sure that we are receiving Christ's resurrection as our own. So we not only partake of his crucifixion, we die or buried with him, but we participate by faith in his resurrection. That's why baptism is so symbolic. And it's, it, it means a lot more than that, but we, we look at baptism and it is, it is an example or an illustration of this truth. When you go under the water, you are showing that you are participating in Christ's burial. So in essence, you're dying to sin, you're being buried with him by baptism, and just like he had been resurrected from the dead, you two are shown to have newness of life that has been imparted to you. So we show by the, the resurrection, or by our baptism, that we are participants within the resurrection. But then we must appropriate that truth as our own. Let's look at this one, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 11. I'd like us to look at that for a moment. What shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's a spiritual aspect to it of which the physical act of baptism points to that spiritual act that has occurred. Baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. New life. So we participate by faith in Christ's resurrection. So dying to self involves a crucifixion, a death, and a resurrection. If we're to truly take up our cross, it means dying to ourselves. But it also means living the life of Christ or having the, Christ, the life of Christ exhibited and seen within each one of us. We must appropriate his death as our own, as we do, and his life must be our own too. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11 says this, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus, which is brought out by the Holy Spirit of God, might be also manifested in our mortal flesh. So in other words, when we die to self, and when we participate in that crucifixion, 
It's so that we, that we might die and have the life of Christ seen in us. In other words, when we take up the cross, the goal is, is that Jesus is seen in more aspects of our lives in directing us and changing us and teaching us how to love and how to live and how to interact. So it's the Spirit of God bringing about the life of Jesus within each one of us. Now, and if, if we're to be receiving Christ's resurrection on our own, it means understanding something very, very important, that growth comes through grace. Write that down. Growth comes through grace. I am convinced that we in the modern evangelical church don't understand grace. It's a theological concept, but it's not a truth that we daily live in. And I confess, and I, I've mentioned this before, out of all the studies that I've ever done, I can, I can understand great theological treatises and, and read the giants that have been long dead, but the one thing that I have a hard time understanding is the most basic truth of Christianity, of grace. Grace is a gift to us that teaches us what it means to follow Him. And God wants us to grow in grace. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The Bible says, Grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. God desires that we grow in grace. Now, what does that mean, to grow in grace? Protestant reformer Martin Luther, he, he said this, and I love this. It's a great quote by him. He, if anybody understood grace, it was Martin Luther, who lived by law for years and years and years. It's when he discovered justification by faith, declared righteousness by faith, not by works, and understanding what grace truly was that his life was changed forever. He said this, If you are a preacher of grace, then preach a true, not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, you must bear a true, not a fictitious sin. God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners. Don't pretend to be, but really are. Be a sinner and sin boldly. You'll never hear that ever again in church, ever again. But you need to draw out the meaning of that to understand the full context. He says, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly. Even more. Sin boldly, but Christ is even be more bold with him. For he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. As long as we are here, we have to sin. The, this the life is not the dwelling place of righteousness. But as Peter says, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Pray boldly too, for you are a mighty sinner. Now, what he's saying there is not that we, we have to sin in that we are, we are commanded to sin. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that while we're on this earth, we're going to sin. It's inevitable that while we have the sinful flesh, that we have not been removed from the mere presence of sin, we're going to continue to sin in some way. We're going to stumble and fall. However, claim the boldly, bold grace of Christ that he has made available to you. Some even said of him, when you heard him initially pray, and how he would start confessing his sin that you pitied him. He was so, considered himself to be so vile. And you just felt bad. And then when he started to pray and petition, they said you feared for him. So bold was he in presenting his request. But it was not because of what he had done. He was bold because of what Jesus had done. How, many much, how much more could we understand this grace that God has enabled us to have? It is the, 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 the cushion that we fall into that God has made available to us. We cannot out-sin grace, and we don't want to. 
we, we can even, uh, we, we fail to understand cheap grace and costly grace. See, many of us have cheap grace, not costly grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about grace. I'd like to have us look at this for a moment. He says, this is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. We excuse it. We excuse our sin saying it's not that bad. But he says we don't really truly understand grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Then he says this, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his good. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes it to, him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ in which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such a grace is costly because it calls us, calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what was, has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son to desire a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us costly grace is the incarnation of God. In other words, he's saying this, God, through Jesus Christ, paid the price for your sins, past, present, and future. No matter how much you sin, it's not greater than the grace of God. That God's grace is still greater than our sin. Isn't that amazing? You know that you can't out grace, and you shouldn't even try. That's why Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have been freed from sin continue in sin any longer? Saying that grace, God's grace, it's this, no matter how much we sin, God's grace is there. No matter how much we sin, God's grace is there. No matter how much we sin, God's grace is there. And after a while, you realize, I don't need to be worried about of, of losing my salvation. I need to be concerned about grace and then you don't want to sin any longer because you realize his death was so amazing that it it took the sting and the, even the pleasures out of our sin and made us want to please god even more that's a big huge phenomenal truth we're to grow in grace now we talked about this last week if we're to continue and grow in christ likeness then this must happen does it happen by ourselves where does it happen it happens in community right? It's in the body of believers that we grow. How many of you ever, I mean, we, we talk about community, and I, I want to add to that in just a moment, but I want to look at the next point. If it means growing in community, Christ-likeness comes in community, it means that we need to be taking the time for training. Now, I'm going I'm to draw this out here for a moment, because we, we have Christ-likeness, 
that happens in community with other believers, which means we're sharpening one another, but means we need to be taking time for training. How many of you have ever seen Rocky? Ever seen Rocky? Raise your hand. You ever seen Rocky? Oh, you all the rest are lying. It's a great movie, and what's the best part of the movie? Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the eye of the tiger, right? And he starts doing all the sit-ups and the push-ups, and he's all getting ready. And I remember as a kid, I'd be doing the sit-ups with him, you know, because I wanted to train. I wanted to be like Rocky, you know? You want to you train. And you know that God tells us we need to train ourselves to be godly? Did you know that? I want you to look at this verse with me. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, the, the word there for train, do you know what it is? It's, it's the word gymnazo. Gymnazo. And it, it's interesting that that word is where we get our word gymnasium, where we work out, right? And so he's saying there, and, and the, the word actually has a, a very intense meaning. It means exert intensely like a pro athlete. It presumes full discipline necessary to top working condition, full agility, skill, endurance, and it's gained from just rigorous training and exercise. I, 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 I know several years ago, um, if you remember in 09, I, which was like 50 pounds ago, I ran the Chicago Marathon, okay? And I had never run anything like that in my life. And it, you know how long it took me to get in shape for it? Months. And how dedicated do you think I had to be to run the marathon? Hugely. It affected everything. It affected what I ate. It affected when I went to bed. It affected my time because I needed to be time-taking training. It, and I had to do, I had to get in shape. And I, I needed to be tr taking that time to train for something that important. See, God is saying here, to train yourself to be godly, that you need to be taking that time. And it's going to affect all of your life. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. It happens in community, but in the community is when we start getting sharpened with one another. We sharpen one another. It makes each other want to be more like Jesus Christ. Now, how do we get in shape, though, spiritually speaking? And I'm going to walk through these rather quickly. What we need to be doing is taking and doing certain exercises. Just like when I was training for the Chicago Marathon, I contacted my sister-in-law, who also ran the marathon. And she's this personal trainer. So she sent me a list of exercises that I needed to do to prepare myself. And if we're going to be of use to God, then we need to be doing spiritual disciplines to grow. Now here's, these practicing these spiritual disciplines are the means by which God, or we train ourselves to grow, to become more in shape, spiritually speaking, so that we may not be flabby. Now I'm going to walk through these rather quickly. The first is this, and it's the root of it all, it means that we need to be reading the Word of God. Reading, read, and not just the Word of God, reading uh, great Christian biographies, to be reading great Christian works, classic works, uh, like The Cost of Discipleship or uh, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Uh, there's several different wonderful pieces of, of Christian literature that have grown people for generations. We need to be able to digest that. Now, it's interesting. Some people say, well, reading the Scripture is very difficult for me. I understand that. But I promise you, the more that you read, the more you'll understand and the more that you're going to grow. I love what Billy Sunday, who was an evangelist in the early 20th century, this was found in the leaflet of his Bible. I want to show this to you. I've read this to you before, but I, it bears repeating now. He says, 27 years ago with the Holy Spirit for my guide. Remember, we have to be responding to the Spirit, right? 
With spirit as my guide, I entered this wonderful temple that we call Christianity. I entered through the portico of Genesis, walked down to the Old Testament's art gallery, where I saw the portraits of Joseph, Jacob, Daniel, Moses, Isaiah, Solomon, and David hanging on the wall. I entered the music room of the Psalms, and the Spirit of God struck the keyboard of my nature until it seemed to me that every reed and pipe in God's great organ of nature responded to the harp of David and the charm of King Solomon and his moods. I walked into the business house of Proverbs. I walked into the observatory of the prophets and there saw photographs of various sizes, some pointing to far-off stars or events all concentrated upon one great star, which was to rise as an atonement for sin. Then I went into the audience room of the King of Kings and got a vision from four different points, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I went into the correspondence room and saw Peter, James, Paul, and Jude pinning their epistles to the world. I went into the Acts of the Apostles and saw the Holy Spirit forming the Holy Church. And then I walked into the throne room and saw a door at the foot of a tower. And going up, I saw one standing there, fair as the morning, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I found this truest friend that man ever knew. When all were false, I found him true. In teaching the way of life, the Bible has taught me the way to live, and it taught me how to die. That's what happens when you read the Word of God. It transforms you. And it's not about us reading the Word. It's about how the, read of the God, Word of God reads us. As that phrase has often been passed around, and I've seen it, the Bible is the only book that you will ever read and where the author is present each and every time pretty profound truth to think about that god is changing us but we not only need to be reading we need to be meditating upon the word of god some people just read it and forget about it we need to be stopping camping on it and reading it letting it become a part of our being and transforming us from the inside out and not only are we reading and meditating we need to be studying it studying the word of god now, I went to Moody Bible Institute as an undergraduate and engraved in so many different places within uh, the school was this verse in the King James Version, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It was ingrained within each one of us. If we want to grow and we truly want to understand who God is, then we need to study God's word, not just read it, not just meditate on it, but to truly study it. And we also need to be conversing with our Savior. Here's another means by which we grow in grace. That is simply praying. It's a conversation with God, taking the time necessary to commune with Almighty God. Many of us are so hurried. We, we use prayer, and it's just an addendum to life, instead of being such an integral part of who we are. Are we praying, not only as individuals, but corporately? Asking God to bless and, and transform and use us for His glory. We need to be doing that. And then the, probably the most often overlooked spiritual discipline, fasting. Fasting. One of the least popular subjects to talk about in the Christian life, but one of the best ways to come to the end of who we are and be filled up with God. Now, I love John Piper in his book, A Hunger for God. He says this about fasting. It's a great quote. He says, Desires for other things, that's the enemy. He's saying that fasting draws out where our true desires are. And the only weapon that will triumph is a deep hunger for God. Are you hungry for God? How great and how strong is your hunger for God? Do you pant for God? 
and long for him? Is he an integral part of your life? The only weapon that will triumph is a deep hunger for God. The weakness of our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. Perhaps then the denial of our stomach's appetite for food might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. He says this, What is at stake here is not just the good of our souls, but also the glory of God. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. The fight of faith is a fight to feast on all that God is for us in Christ. Without the hunger, what we hunger for most, we worship. Think about that. What do you hunger for? Fame, fortune, power, prestige, security? What is it? What do you hunger for more than God? See, fasting brings out where those true hungers are. It shows us where our sinfulness is. Maybe you can't fast from food. Maybe you can fast from other things. Fast from entertainment. I think we could all do to fast from a little TV. Fast from the internet. Fast from whatever that is an idol to you that is keeping you from truly having time with the Savior. Give it over to the Lord. Because as soon as you fast, you're going to find out that your faith is being fed. Wesley Duell, in his book on fasting, he says this, Fasting feeds your faith. Your confidence begins to deepen. Your hope begins to rise, for you know you are doing what pleases the Lord. Your willingness to deny self and voluntarily take up this added cross kindles an inner joy. Your faith begins to lay hold of God's promise more simply and more firmly. And here's another one. Worshiping. That's a discipline. Coming to be with the saints of God and worshiping. Worshiping corporately and worshiping privately. Because, as we've seen and we learned last week, it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates His presence to us. And where true worship occurs, what did we learn last week? What occurs when there's true worship? True. Do I have to go and preach that sermon right now? I will do it. True transformation. When we are... When we are truly worshiping, there will be true transformation taking place. And without, I mean, without true worship, there is no true transformation. But when we go and we encounter God, we will be transformed. Here's another discipline. Serving. Are you serving another person? I mean, today, many churches are just having people come in and they're anonymous and they leave. But serving one another, we really getting, that's real discipleship. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We're to be serving one another. And we can do this in a variety of ways. Taking care of one another's children, coming to generations, or even serving food. I mean, there are many different ways. Maybe you're a, a, a mechanic. You can help uh, uh, someone that needs an oil change. Maybe a single mom. I mean, there's, there's a multitude of ways that we can serve one another. I mean, it might be helping put out coffee or donuts, or, or maybe it's, it's taking out the garbage, or maybe it's greeting one another, or, or welcoming someone, or someone at the Welcome Center, or in our AV, or, wor- or one of a part of our worship team. God desires us to serve. That's what we see in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. We should all be serving each other. It's the example of Jesus and what he's laid out for us. How are we serving one another? Now, here's another one. This is probably another least favorite, but it's also really hugely indicative of our heart. We also need to be giving. Giving. Yes, giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 8. 
Paul, by the Spirit, writes, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly. We're under compulsion, for God loves a... Wow, cheerful giver. I remember hearing Bill Glass of Bill Glass Ministries uh, say, God, you should, you should give hilariously. You should be laughing when the plate goes by, you know? Not crying. I know, I know a man, I, told, I think I told you about once, I was in the, a line at the grocery store, and he pulls out his wallet, and he says, you know what my wallet's made out of? I said, what? He goes, onion leather. I was like, onion leather? He goes, yeah, every time I open it, I cry. <laughs> I mean, many of us, that's how we feel when we give, you know? But we shouldn't. We should give joyously, hilariously. We should give not under compulsion, but a delight of our heart as a response to God's grace to us. We should give joyously. And we're also to be, and this is a basic one that we've heard about, we're to be evangelizing. That's a discipline. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with our family and our friends. Some of us, we, we forget that fact, and we just kind of put it in the back burner. But we should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. Making sure that we are going forth and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, it's interesting. I, I, I mentioned before I went to Moody Bible Institute, named after the great evangelist, the 19th century evangelist, D.L. Moody. And he, he was an amazing, amazing man of God. If you ever get an opportunity to read about him, I would encourage you to. But what many people don't know is that he had made a covenant with God that he would witness to Christ, witness for Christ, at least one person each day. He made a commitment. That was his commitment. He made a covenant with God. And one night, he was getting ready. He, he got into bed, and he, it was 10 o'clock, and he realized that he hadn't witnessed to someone. So he got dressed, went out into the Chicago snow. It was winter. Went out into the street and spoke to a man by a lamppost, asking him, are you a Christian? The man flew into a violent rage and threatened to knock Moody into the gutter. Later, that same man went to an elder in the church and complained that Moody was doing more harm in Chicago than ten men were doing good. The elder begged Moody to temper his zeal with knowledge. Now, interesting enough, three months later, Moody was awakened at the YMCA by a man knocking on the door. It was the man he had witnessed to. The man said, I want to talk to you about my soul. He apologized for the way he had treated Moody and said that he had no peace ever since that night on Lake Street when Moody witnessed to him. Moody led the man to Christ and he became a zealous worker in their Sunday school. God honors those steps of faith and those risks that we take. Anyone else want to take that up? Evangelizing one person per day? I mean, think about how many people would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ if we did that. That's huge. And if we all did that. We need to be evangelizing. We also need to be fellowshipping together. Fellowshipping together. It means we need to be together. As I mentioned before, Christ-likeness happens in community. And it's through being with one another that we are sharpening one another. And it's the verse we've, we've looked at many times over the last several weeks. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Or as Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. I remember, and I'm going to conclude with this small story. I had mentioned that I, I ran the marathon. And years before, uh, the reason I ran the, the marathon is because I remembered the glory days when I was a young kid. I was like 13 years old. I was in track. And uh, I was in sixth grade and I started training and I found out that I was pretty good at running. 
and, and I kept training all year long. And by the end of the year, I got to the state track meet. And I ended up getting second in the state track final. So when I came back my seventh grade year, I was pretty confident. I was feeling pretty good. I got second at state as a sixth grader. And now I was running with these seventh and eighth graders. But I was fully confident I was the best runner on the track. The very first practice, I'm running around the track thinking that I've all that and I've arrived. And I'm getting there and I see this one guy, who brand new student, just zing past me like I'm standing still. And for the rest, I, I try to catch up to him. And I was so startled because I didn't know where this guy came from. I didn't know anything about him. I'd never seen him before. And it turns out he, he had been, uh, he'd grown up Amish. And uh, he now was going to a public school. Um, his pam- family had become Mennonite. And he wanted to run track. And his father actually owned, uh, owned quarter horses. So he had a racetrack on his farm. And this guy would run this track. And then he would run to school three miles every day. And then he would run home. I mean, it's a true story. And I, I would race him, and he every, it drove me nuts. Every practice, he would just beat me by a little bit. And then when I got to meets, I would run in the first heat, which was the seventh graders, and he would run in the eighth graders. And I had trained so hard trying to catch him that I would blow everybody out of the water, and I would set the state record. And I would feel so good for five minutes because he would run in the next heat, and he would break my record. It was like that all year long, and it drove me crazy. But you know what? Training with him made me better. You know, they actually do that in the marathon. That They have the runners out front, and they have these guys appear in the middle of the track, in the middle of the race. They're called rabbits. And these guys are to run right in front of the leader. Why? Because it makes the leader want to run faster and follow them. See, we need those spiritual rabbits coming out in front of us and leading us to press on to godliness, to grow more in our walk with Jesus Christ, to sharpen one another, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, we have the difference between a thermo- thermometer and a thermostat. You know what the difference is? A thermometer reflects the temperature that's in the room. A thermostat sets it. Are we going to be spiritual thermometers or thermostats? We need to set that temperature in our families and in our church that God might be glorified in us. God wants us to grow. God wants us to grow up. Some of you are like, I want to go home. Sorry we've taken so long today. We have, uh, we wanted to, I didn't want to shorten this message. I believe it's important for each one of us. And I'm so glad that we've had an opportunity to get to know our missionaries. Um, I would really encourage you to stick around afterwards uh, to spend some time with them. And I would also encourage you to think about putting some of these spiritual disciplines in your life, whether it's reading the Word of God. Maybe it's one at a time. Maybe it's taking a concerted amount of time of prayer. But grow up in your faith so God might be glorified in you and you might increase in joy in him. Let's stand as we close our service time with our benediction today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that you desire us to achieve uh, adulthood in the faith. Lord, help us to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus, to press on in the faith, Lord, responding to the Spirit of God that is at work within each one of us, as the Spirit of God is trying to manifest and grow the Son of God that we might grow in righteousness with you. So, Lord, please glorify your name in our lives as we each go our separate ways, as we come together tonight at the Bar and Bass to have a great and fun time. And, Lord, may your name grow, uh, expand from this place into all the nations that they, too, might worship you in spirit and in truth, and your name might go forth, that other people might respond in joy. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. God's people said, Amen.